The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, October 12th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I came across a tweet which led me to a question which answered a conundrum I had never considered. Now, the tweet is from a guy, a data scientist, let's say. Who's not? I can't disprove that. His name is Gwillem Lockwood. And he tweets, I walked past a Tennessee fried chicken the other day. This guy's from London. And I wonder how many UK chicken shops are called, parentheses, US state fried chicken. And so he did the research. He found every fried chicken place in the United Kingdom that was named after a US state. And he said, I'm not going to count Kentucky. Here were the states he found. He found an Alaska fried chicken, an Arizona fried chicken, California, Florida, Georgia, a Kansas fried chicken, Michigan fried chicken, Mississippi fried chicken, one Montana fried chicken, an Ohio fried chicken, Tennessee, a few Texases, and a Virginia. And then it has a number of amazing graphs to show the distribution geographically of these fried chicken places. I did the same thing for New York. I could find the New York stats. And in New York, they're in addition to Kentucky fried chicken, which isn't actually, doesn't actually exist as such, KFC. There is a New York fried chicken, a Texas fried chicken. Are you ready for this one? An Arkansas fried chicken. But not nearly as many chickens named after states as they have in a country other than our own. Theory, I think it is harder to sell a New Yorker uh, than someone from Stoke-on-Kent about the prospects of biting into fried chicken from Kansas. Now, I have long wondered about the question, what is the worst state to name a food after, to associate your food stuff brand-wise with a state or commonwealth? Now, when I ask this question to people, and maybe you are such a person, you said, New Jersey! because it always gets a laugh, but that is totally untrue. There are Jersey tomatoes, there's Jersey Mike's subs, there's a Jersey fried chicken. Well, I Googled it. It said it was a Jersey fried chicken, but it really was a Jersey, a baseball Jersey of fried chicken. I'm not kidding. For $70, you could wear a fried chicken Jersey. So here are some of the runners up. It's not Jersey. Arkansas. I don't think Arkansas goes well with a lot of things you want to put in your mouth. Fresh, clear Arkansas spring water. Maybe. New Hampshire doesn't go well. It doesn't seem like a disgusting place or anything. It's nice. It's clean. It's just the length of the name New Hampshire. Hey, you want a New Hampshire burger? You know, also, it lacks a lot of distinguishing characteristics, right? It's next to Vermont, the man in the mountain that fell down, uh, votes first, doesn't lead you to want to bite into New Hampshire broil, let's say. Now, South Dakota, that has a little bit of the New Hampshire problem. It's a mouthful. South Dakota pears aren't that inviting. South Dakota strudel, I'd rather pass. Doesn't roll off the tongue. But you know what? If you take the South away and just call things Dakota, Dakota something, that's a that's a delicious food, right? I've got your answer, though. I've gone through some of the runners up. Your answer is West Virginia. Hey, you want a sip of that West Virginia wine, a healthy swig of West Virginia sparkling water? You do not. Such are the associations with West Virginia. Sorry, West Virginia, you lost on that one. You did win the war on coal, though, so take that as far as you can. On the show today, I spiel about Harvey Weinstein. Bit of a cad. Going to come out and say it. So you got a doughy, powerful media mogul who used his position to harass women or worse. And that is a phenomenon that unites sides across the political aisle. That's nice. But first, Eamon Ismael is a Slate video producer who has a series, an award-winning series. I don't know if that's true, but it'll be true soon. It's a very good series. 
And he explores being a Muslim in 2017. He talks about diet. He talks about headscarves. He talks about homosexuality in the Muslim community. And he also talks a lot about the American panic over his religion. Who's afraid of Amin Ismail? Listen to this and you won't be. Who's afraid of Eamon Ismael? I mean, who would be? The guy sits right behind me at Slate, and he's, I was going to say a nice guy. He's what you would call a chill guy. He's as chill as they get. He skateboards to work, and when he gets to the front door, he doesn't just put it under his arm. He does this really elaborate pop-up thing (laughs) that I've seen him do. Uh, But I guess he has this superpower, or perhaps uh, a little bit of uh, evil inside him, according to some, because he is a Muslim. And so the Slate series, Who's Afraid of Eman Ismael, is about, really, using one guy, a very nice guy, has been called the Shia LaBeouf of Islam, to figure out how much in a knot our country has tied itself in relation to his religion. Hello, Eamon. How are you? Hey, what an intro. This was covered in, I think, the first episode, but... You're Muslim. That's a religion. Mm-hmm. I guess, how Muslim are you? How much in the faith were you raised? And uh, what's the extent of your belief today? So right now, I'm not as Muslim as a lot of other people that I know. I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. I went to an Islamic school where everything was taught in Arabic, where our merit was based on how well we can memorize these Arabic words that we really didn't understand. So uh, I'm Muslim in that sense. You know, yeah. I learned it from the elders and these people who came from the Middle East who were teaching us things like, You'll go to straight to hell if you were to look another girl in her eyes. You yeah. know what I mean? Now, like, did you kids believe that or laugh at that? Hell no. We were yeah, laughing yeah, at it. We yeah. would go home. We'd watch Buffy the Vampire. What did your parents tell you when the radical clerics, as they say, would say that nonsense? <laughs> uh, I mean, sometimes they'd be like, yeah, look, it makes sense. The earth is flat. But at the same time. But your parents would say that? <laughs> I mean, not that the earth was flat, but that's what it would sound like to somebody yeah, like yeah, me who was yeah. being raised in the West. Yeah. But it really felt like they were trying to hold on to this cultural significance of the religion that they were bringing in from a place sure. like Egypt. And and the analogy that I definitely think of is uh, a Jewish kid, maybe an Orthodox Jewish kid who goes to a yeshiva and some of the uh, teachings there are not in line with science, but perhaps this person goes out into the world and either does or doesn't wear a yarmulke and no one in America really is afraid of him. Yeah, it's really, I think it just goes back to anybody who grew up in a a conservative, fundamentalist, religious background, you know? Uh, And for my case, it was Islam and a lot of people don't really fully understand Islam, but really in their heart believe that they know exactly what it is and what it's up to. But the parts of the religion as you take it and you live it that aren't fundamentalist, is this just stuff that you found out or were your parents or people who were trying to teach you what the religion was, were they, did they have a message of, well, yes, this is what's written in the Quran, but of course, and and we do believe the Quran's a literal word, uh, that Muhammad received. But of course, that's impractical in the real world. Or here are some ways that what it means is symbolic. You know, yeah. or did did every bit of, I guess my question is, did every uh, temperance that you had, did every amount of looking at the religion as, you know, spiritualism, if not literalism, did that all come from within or were there messages from without that led you to that? Uh, it really started with, trying to understand it on my own. So when I grew up in a place like 
New Jersey where everybody sort of mixed in together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was meeting a lot of other people that weren't Muslim and they were asking me a lot of questions. And the more questions I got, the more I realized I had no idea what the hell I was talking about. So for a long time, I just sort of disassociated myself from it. Every time anybody would ask me, why do women wear scarves? I would reply snarkily, oh, you know, there's air conditioners under there. It's hot in the desert. And that would be it. Until a certain point in college, I was really starting to to embody this whole ambassador role. Mm. Everybody who I met, even though and I the saw- the year my, in, in college was when for you? What year? That was 2007 to 2011. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I still feel like I don't have it all figured out. And no. I think that's a huge component of why- I wanted to do this series so that I can learn about this stuff for myself. I don't want to be an authority on Islam. I don't right. want to pretend like uh, I am the one who understands what the Quran really teaches. It's really about asking questions and not being afraid to ask the questions that people are more timid to ask about a thing like Islam, liberals and conservatives. Yeah, I think in this series you embody a lot of excellent traits of the journalist. You're an audience surrogate. Even if the audience isn't Muslim, they could identify with you and figure out questions about uh, both the religion and people who want to attack the religion. Just a couple more biographical questions. Your mom, is she veiled? Does she wear a head covering? Yeah, she is. She, Funny enough, she really didn't start wearing it until she moved to America in uh-huh. her late 20s. And that was a way to hold on to her identity? Exactly. Uh, your sister, Harvard graduate? Harvard graduate, graduated from Harvard, uh, undergrad, went to Harvard Law, Yeah. graduated, and then went to, and now, now she just graduated from NYU Medical School. Uh, veiled? Yes, her whole life. And it kind of sucks because now she's starting to think about what life might have been like if she wasn't veiled. And uh, one of the things that was surprising about it is that she isn't really considering religion. She's really weighing how my mom would react. Yeah. And it's about her relationship with her family. Do you drink or eat pork? I have drank. In the same sitting? (laughs) Bacon (laughs) martini? (laughs) I mean, I I grew up in Jersey. Yeah. I grew up with a whole bunch of Brazilians. I've probably eaten pork without even realizing it a thousand times. (laughs) And you drink occasionally? Yeah, probably more than I should. Do you feel guilty about it? A hundred percent. If my mom ever hears this, she's going to kill me. So has that not been on? Have they been watching the videos? Yeah, but I'll never take a swig of anything on camera. Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. I'm only telling you because I love you, Mike. Okay. So there are <laughs> there are a few episodes, a few of these episodes, like the one with your sister and uh, the veil, are kind of exploring the religion through the religious. But there are others that talk about people who don't understand Islam at all, sometimes people who are opposed to it in some way Mm -hmm. very first episode you go to the midwestern home of a guy who runs one of these right-wing websites what's his deal and why'd you go there so his name is jim hoft and he runs this website called the gateway pundit and it's big i mean it's massive it seems like it's not just based on layout as you know from working at slate (laughs) like we have much better layout but man it's big it's got a a huge following and people are convinced that it's the one news source that's truth and uh it it sucks because we had this person who I interviewed and I, and I asked him point blank, uh, what do you know about Islam? And he responded, not much, but he is considered to be an authority on what it what uh, is so dangerous about Muslims who are coming to America. Some of his most trafficked postings are about Islam. Yeah. Why do you say yes to your interview request? I don't know. I mean, I was pretty forthcoming with what the series was about. My guess is that he's just a really nice guy on the inside and and probably was disarmed when he just saw a regular person. Yeah, he seemed like a personally nice guy, perfectly polite. I don't have a lot of close contacts with Muslims here. But then I see people like you 
who I enjoy, who I can learn from, and I wonder what kind of pushback do you get in your community? And, and to be honest with you, I really don't believe that he has this sort of vengeful hate for Muslims. I really do believe in my heart that he has found an audience, and the audience is is more likely to to click like on an article that is really scathing about Muslims. And just like we do at Slate, if there's something that's really successful on the site, we'll produce more of it. Yeah. You went in wanting to get some answers from him. We see that on the video. Did you go in wanting to impart him with any impression of a real life Muslim, someone maybe he hasn't actually come across? Absolutely. Uh, One of the biggest problems about talking about Islam is that it's so broad and so massive that you can't really characterize a population that has 1.5 1.5 billion people mm-hmm. and expand every single continent and almost every single language. So uh, just to make it a little bit more personal and to introduce him to someone who is a Muslim and isn't shy about it and is willing to talk about it and talk about the things that are questionable about it, I think that can make a difference for someone who writes things like, uh, you can't criticize Islam because they'll kill you for it. Do you think your series about who's afraid of you, is doing anything, is is doing anything other than preaching to the converted? 100% I think we're doing something. And I'm not just saying that to be be a dick. Uh, so this is what I think. I don't think you're I've, being a dick. <laughs> I've gotten lots of messages from people online who have said things like, wow, I felt this way my entire life, but I've never actually seen it from this perspective. Mm-hmm. The first episode we dropped was about homophobia. This is something that's rampant all, all, all around the world. And if you go back 20 years in America... We would be in the, in the same boat as a place like Egypt. Uh, and I think it's really great that America has been able to develop and give people the rights that they deserve, human rights. And a lot of Muslims are also in agreement with that. But when you have people who are coming over from Egypt or coming over from Iran or Saudi Arabia or anything like that, where they come from that world, they come from that culture and they're coming to a place like the West, they're trying to rationalize. How do, that, how do I balance these Western values that I want to adopt with what I believe in my heart is to be religious values that I, I left from home? And from watching this video where you, you're able to see what that effect can have on somebody who's just growing up Muslim themselves, it, it'll just push, put a face on the victim that we're always talking about. Why do you think this hasn't been done before now? It seems like a no-brainer of an idea. You get a uh, compelling central figure, you know, an Eamon Ismail type. You set him out in the world. You f- show that people aren't really so different. There's a little education. There's a little humor. Why? Why? Why not tell them? It seems, aren't there Muslims who work for networks? Uh, doesn't M- MSNBC and CNN have a lot of programming to fill? Don't they have a Muslim on staff? Why hasn't yeah. this gone on? It's still fairly new to see the the neighborhood friendly Muslim on, on in media, you know. Riza Aslan was like the first one, and yeah. Even before that, and then he got shit canned for going nuts yeah, on for, Trump, for calling Trump an asshole, and yeah. you know, maybe I should delete some tweets so I can keep the show going. But uh, I'm really happy that you you feel that way and that you think it's like an inevitable thing that was going to happen with Muslims growing up in the West. But I'm first generation, you know. Right. Uh, my parents came here from another country. A lot of the Muslims that I know are like that, you know, it's sort of a, a brand new thing to come to the West and people talk about Muslims not assimilating and everything. Uh, I'm it. I'm an assimilated American. And I think with more people like me growing up, this is going to be something that's a lot more common. Now, it's funny that we talk, we're talking a little bit about assimilation because you talk to a Canadian Muslim who really did get radicalized. So I thought that that was the right call to make in terms of something that you had to uh, had to cover. Tell me a little bit about him, and then I have a specific question to ask. 
Uh, his name is Mubin Sheikh, and he lives in Toronto, Canada. And now he works for law enforcement. He sort of became a double agent when he when he was initially becoming radicalized. He told me that after September 11 was when he had an epiphany and he realized that everything that he was becoming was contradicting everything that he'd learned about Islam, which is dope. But what was really fascinating about that conversation is how little religion had to do with his radicalization process. Uh, he got caught having a party at home, you know, which is a nightmare for any kid growing up in a conservative household, not just Islam or anything. Uh, I watched Seven Heaven. I know what Christians are up to. Uh, <laughs> and it's a nightmare situation. So when that happens, he wanted to prove to his whole community uh, he was taking the right path. Mm -hmm. So he went to Pakistan, where his family is from, to learn about it. And he didn't know it at the time. But when he got there, the it was the stronghold of the Taliban. This is before September 11. This is 1993. So having to be in, put into that environment... From a place of not knowing anything about his religion, that's what he learned. His motivation wasn't to go and get revenge or, or he didn't read the Quran and then decide, this is what my fate has to be as a Muslim if I want to get into heaven. He wanted to overcompensate for the fact that his community didn't see him as a good Muslim. I came back and my beard was like down here. I got bit by the jihadi bug, as I call it. I took on that hyper-Muslim identity. It was about reclaiming the lost glory of Islam through fighting again. Here's my question. You identified with that, and I can understand identifying that up to a point. Like, all rebelliousness is probably based on a version of that. But to me, and I think to you, though you didn't articulate it quite in the series, mm -hmm. you said, yes, I can identify with that feeling. But it seems like such a, such a chasm, not just a step that you fall into, but such a gigantic chasm that that would lead you to terrorism or being, or, or being a jihadi. Um, but does it only seem that way to me as a person who was, you know, born white and is 45 years old? Does it not seem like that gigantic a chasm to someone like you? It, it really doesn't. And that's what scared me about talking to him is that everything he was talking about sounded familiar. I was, I was expecting some sort of crazy story, but everything that he was describing was exactly my experience. Going to the mosque after school to go study the Quran, like that kind of thing. That was what I did, you know, that's what all Muslims kids do for, for, the, for the most part. Uh, but what I think the chasm, and here's why I, I identify like I feel alienated, so I feel rebellious, I want to reject uh, the standards of my society. But then to become a terrorist, that's the chasm. Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah. What, this is what America does best. They make all of the minorities here feel as though they are second class Americans. Mm -hmm. And the differences in how we're treated by law enforcement or in the differences by how we're, we're looked at by judges. And I'm talking about how we're uh, talked about in news media and how we're talked about on TV and constantly being told things like Islam hates us. We're at war with Islam. Islam is a cancer. We can't let Muslims in here because Muslims are violent. Uh, I identify as Muslim. I also identify as American, but it's already uh, what they're doing is they're trying to tell me that I need to pick one. Yeah. You can't be Muslim and American. So it's only natural that you have to either push all of your Muslim identity out of you and become full-blown American or push all of your American identity out and become full-blown Muslim. Eamon Ismail, I, I ask you, who's afraid of him? I'm not. That's the name of the series from Slate, Who's Afraid of Eamon Ismail. Eamon, thank you so much. Thanks, Mike.
Each week on I Have to Ask, Slate's resident interrogator, well, let us say one of them, or the one who, that's really his main job, Isaac Chotner, talks one-on-one with newsmakers, celebrities, and cultural icons to help us better understand them and our world. Why would a just listener be interested in that sort of thing? What I'm saying is that show in ours perhaps has a large overlap, and I think you'd be interested in it. Check out the recent two-part interview with New Yorker editor David Remnick. Uh, Isaac and David cover how the magazine world is evolving in the age of Trump, whether Hillary hatred has gone too far, and why Obama is cashing in on Wall Street. And now the spiel. Harvey Weinstein, sexual harasser. Sorry, accused sexual harasser. I'll now read some of the official Weinstein denial. Here we go. Mr. Weinstein believes that all of these relationships were consensual. Mr. Weinstein has begun counseling, has listened to the community, and is pursuing a better path. Mr. Weinstein is hoping that if he makes enough progress, he will be given a second chance. To which the statement did not add. Mr. Weinstein is perhaps some form of garbage, but we hope the community recognizes him as a recyclable kind. You guys love recycling, right? Mr. Weinstein donates to recycling things. Mr. Weinstein reminds us how moved you were by chocolate and how much you like Spy Kids. He produced Spy Kids. So can you forgive Mr. Weinstein? You can. Thank you. Mr. Weinstein asked you to come up to his hotel room and tell him in person he's wearing the bathrobe. Oh, no. Mr. Weinstein has gone too far. The community is actively vomiting, and Mr. Weinstein hopes that it will eventually stop. But there are heroes in this story. In all seriousness, if you read the details, I had a lot of admiration for a lot of these these women, these, I guess, alleged victims, how some would fight him off, how some would navigate around him, how very often they would warn others. They felt they were powerless. They probably were. They did what they can. But think about Gwyneth Paltrow, right? So today we have this uh, image of Gwyneth Paltrow. She's a Gupta Panor. And we do assume her celebrity was inevitable. For most of us, like she's always been a celebrity and she was born to some form of uh, Hollywood royalty. But that's not true. As a 22-year-old, Weinstein casts her in Emma and then he tries to hit on her and to get her to have sex with him. This is according to the New York Times account. And she says no. She's 22. She carries on. She promotes that movie. She does more movies. She even navigates around him during Shakespeare in Love, which was her biggest movie. I mean, that honestly takes courage. And I'm impressed by Ashley Judd going on the record by name, Rose McGowan too. Others came out after she did. It goes to show if a prosecutor like New York prosecutor Cyrus Vance had brought charges, um, it's a like, maybe he wouldn't have won the case, but more would have come out. There would have been some victims post him bringing the case who would not be victims today. So all those women are courageous. However, There are some people who are getting credit during this whole thing. Maybe they shouldn't be. Like Seth MacFarlane. He cracked this joke when announcing the actress nominees in a pre-Oscar ceremony back in 2013. Congratulations, you five ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) Here's the headline LA Times. Seth MacFarlane reveals truth about his 2013 Harvey Weinstein joke. Uh, He wrote this on social media, but the the LA Times printed it. In 2011, my friend and colleague Jessica Barth, with whom I worked on the TED films, confided in me regarding her encounter with Harvey Weinstein and his attempted advances. She has since courageously come forward to speak out. It was with this account in mind that when I hosted the Oscars in 2013, I couldn't resist the opportunity to take a hard swing in his direction. Okay, the joke was funny. It was deserved. 
It was based in fact. Of course, the joke, this hard swing in Harvey's direction didn't stop Harvey from the, I don't know, 300 documented examples of abuse from that point forward. So Seth MacFarlane made a joke that he knew would land and it did land because it seemed to contain some elements of truth, but it contained more elements of truth than we officially knew. Tina Fey and the writing staff of 30 Rock put the following joke in an episode back in 2012. I'm not afraid of anyone in show business. I turned down intercourse with Harvey Weinstein on no less than three occasions out of five. Here's how Deadline Hollywood covered this joke, their their write-up of this joke. With Tina Fey's upcoming guest spot on NBC's Great News as an executive embroiled in a sexual harassment scandal, that's a new show she's working on, and there's the important part, and a classic 30 Rock episode with a Weinstein crack, many are giving the Golden Globe-winning actress credit for foreseeing this scandal in her comedy Crystal Ball. Crystal Ball! the world's biggest bully egomaniac movie producer who happens to look like a giant toad also sexually harassed ladies? What? Who could have seen that one coming? What seer-like ability? I didn't know it was so easy to get credit for seeing the future. Wow, if you nailed Harvey Weinstein's a creep, you must have talent. So with that in mind, I figure I better put a few markers down so that one day I get some credit. Let's say... Are you telling me she's both a real housewife and a lawbreaker? What? And the plastic surgery was botched? Get out of here. Huh? Oberman fired again? I guess it turns out Ben Carson just wasn't that into public housing. Johnny Depp, killed by his own scarf. Come on. Dermot Mulroney taking a role where he exhibits a lack of range? Come on. Mike Ditka said what? Does he know what year it is? How does this guy keep a job? Oh my God. Who would have thought that after Sean Hannity left Fox for his own podcast and newsletter that he'd torch his former bosses? Yeah, it turns out this was the time that Michael Moore failed to convince everybody who doesn't agree with him already. And that was really unexpected how he didn't call ahead to make an appointment. Whoa. So after leaving the Obama administration, Amorosa is now going to star in a reality show? That's the genre she picked? What? Sheriff Joe? A guest on InfoWars? That's not the Sheriff Joe I know. Now this can't be. This right here. After getting elected Senator Roy Moore engaged in a filibuster, which includes lots of quoting of scripture? Really? So Jeff Flake lost his primary and Trump declared victory. So Jeff Flake won his primary, but lost the general, and Trump said, I exposed him, and declared victory. So Jeff Flake won his primary, then won the general, and Trump said, I strengthened the guy, and claimed victory. Did you hear about OJ's latest media venture? Yeah, that's right, shot down for a Peabody. I know, I know, it's shocking. All right, that's just me trying to get a piece of the, uh, I called Harvey Weinstein was a lecherous creep years ago. And I'm going to try to remember that the next time, which is to say the first time I watch Chocolate. But I do expect the taste to be quite bitter. And that's it for today's show. One Just producer is also the star of an upcoming Slate video series. Who wants to leg wrestle Dan Schrader? It's all about leverage, as Dan Schrader demonstrates with his relentless march of leg wrestling dominance over his Slate colleagues, celebrity guests, and just random kids on the street. 
Mary Wilson, just producer, yes, but soon she'll be more famous for her video series, Who's Weirded Out by Mary Wilson? She's taken to not blinking and singing nursery rhymes really slowly, and she's wearing one of those choker things. She knows a little more than she lets on. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He's also the star of the video series. Who thinks the executive producer of Slate Podcast position is haunted? What? You've not heard about the curse? Less said about it, the better. Just in time for Halloween. The gist, now being rebranded as How Fast Can You Listen to Mike Pascoe? One and a half times speed, double speed, three, four times speed, like they have in the really fancy podcast places. Try it! Your ears will ache with laughter. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.